On the last day of the feast, great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, who knows who believed in him or to receive. For as yet the Spirit has not been given, because Jesus has not yet glorified. And this is the word of the Lord. Good job, guys. I'm so proud of you. That was, that was pretty good. It's pretty good, but good job. You guys are awesome. All right, grab a seat. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work. Jesus, thank you so much for your word, and as it's just been spoken forth on the lips of every human being in this room, God, thank you for just truth. And we ask you right now that you would just open our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our imaginations to who you are and to what you intend and desire to do in our midst here. God, we want to be all in in what you're up to in this world. We don't want to be outsiders. We don't want to be on the other side of the door. We don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to be uh, in a state of non-reconciliation with you. We want all in in all that you're up to because you alone are life and good and goodness embodied. So we just entrust all of this in your hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're just jump right in and get to work. There's like three main things I really want to just kind of focus on and look at. We'll just kind of go through these one by one. And the first thing is I have just very simple, like straight up. Number one, we're going to just take a look at Jesus, how he inserts himself in the feast. I'll circle back to that. Secondly, we'll take a look at how Jesus invited all who thirst to come to him and drink. We'll talk a little bit about the question of like, what does it mean to thirst? What are some of the key thirsts that we as human beings have in 21st century America? And then lastly, we'll just, uh, actually I'll kind of start lastly and then we'll circle back. Uh, John kind of gives us a little bit of an interpretation here. So in fact, I'm going to start with that number three as number one. So John, first of all, just straight up gives an interpretation, which is kind of fascinating to me. Jesus speaks, Jesus shows up, Jesus does something, and John gives, in fact, you can maybe even say sort of like a parenthetical statement, verse 39. He says, this he, Jesus, said of the Spirit, whom those who were to believe in him were to then one day receive. So John immediately just starts off by says, what Jesus just declared was a reference to what would one day come where God's people, those who trust Jesus, those who have received of Jesus, in other words, those who have taken their thirst, their longings, their desires, and they've satisfied them on him alone. John says, to those, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, again, don't really have a whole lot of time to get into the backstory or the detail of all this, but the big idea, the big theological concept throughout the entire ancient scripture is the Holy Spirit basically on page one of the Bible. It says, and God in the beginning created all things, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, and he brought forth life. The big idea of the Spirit, just one big concept for you to take away, is the Spirit of God is a life giver. He's a lifesaver. He gives you life, gives you hope, makes all things new, and he goes everywhere you go. The Holy Spirit is not uh, relegated to a certain spot or space or sacred location. Everywhere we go, the Holy Spirit travels, goes with us. And this is the picture that John seems to be indicating that 
all of this kind of culminates in. Now, I want to circle back and just jump right in to take a look at the first thing that I referenced, which is Jesus inserting himself into the feast. Now, again, it starts off verse 37, just the very first segment of verse 37 says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. So this kind of requires a little bit of a context. Like, what is he talking about? What is this great feast? Again, most of us probably are not Jewish and might not be familiar with certain Jewish customs and holy days. Now, you and I just came out of last week, which was a very high holy day in America. Because remember that? What was it? Come on. Fourth of July. It's a high holy day. It's a high holy day in America, right? We celebrate what? Freedom. That's the big idea behind it, at least in theory. We celebrate freedom. We do that by blowing things up and eating food that we normally don't eat and feeling really horribly sick the next three days afterwards. At least that was my story. But the point that I would make is this, is, is holidays are important because holidays say something. They're symbolic. They speak about certain things. And people engage in certain holidays as a way of re-engaging a story and reminding themselves this is the story to which we belong to. This long, lengthy history that we belong to. The same is true of the Jewish people. They had three major feasts. This third feast that we're looking at here right now is what's commonly known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This is an interesting one where they would gather together. It was one of three major uh, feast days that Jews would celebrate. All Jews would gather together within the city of Jerusalem. Um, and you would imagine the city would swell its size, proportion, lots of people would come there. And what, the way they would do this, they would have booths or tents. So think of this as a big monster like Woodstock Festival, old school, you know, Jesus style, right? Everyone outdoors, outside with their tents for a week, outside doing this. And it was a way of reminding themselves that their forefathers, their family members, the history that they came from. When God set them free from the people of Israel, I'm sorry, when God set them free from the people of Egypt and they were wandering as the people of Israel throughout the wilderness, they found themselves in extraordinarily dry locations. Uh, literally desert. They didn't have any water. In fact, one of the very first things that happened as soon as God set them free from the people of Egypt and they were wandering uh, the first few weeks Uh, first few days, actually, they found themselves literally dying of thirst. And they cried out, God, we're going to die. There's nothing to drink. Now, again, it's hard for us to even imagine this because we've got water bottles everywhere. We can go to any location you want and you will find at minimum a hose, God forbid, or, you know, bottled water, right? We will find water everywhere we go. But imagine living in a place where there's none of that. It doesn't exist. I mean, imagine, again, driving out in the wilderness and you have absolutely nothing to drink. There, There are moments of crisis, and that's one of those moments of crisis, where you're like, I don't, I'm dying. I literally feel like I'm dying of thirst. I have nothing to drink. I don't know where to resource water from. There's not a, you know, 7-Eleven right around the corner. I don't know where I'm going to find life to live on and they cried out to god and god provided for them remember how he did this he tells moses moses strike the rock and then speak to the rock and then out of this rock water would come forth and then issue forth their provision god gave them water from a location that you should not get water out of and this was god's means of provision this is God's way of saying, I'm going to provide for you life and sustenance and hope 
out of a source that's completely improbable. But this is what God does. This is the story that we connect ourselves to. And this is what the people of Israel were reminding themselves during the Feast of Booths, that even though they found themselves in a time of extreme drought and potential death, God provided for them water from the rock and then gave them life. So there's a handful of other passages that would kind of play into this. So that story that I just referenced there was Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, where God makes the provision of water from the rock. There's a couple other passages in the Old Testament that are worthy of note. You can write these down if you'd like. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. It uh, references a day in the future. It says this, on that day, living water. It's a reference to one day in the future. So imagine in this picture of God moving in the past, bringing forth life and provision through an unlikely source like a rock and bringing forth sustenance for people all around. Um, the image is that just as God did this in the past, so God will one day do this in the future. This is what the passage goes on to say. On that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem to the Dead Sea and to the Mediterranean. So again, an unlikely improbable place, water flowing out of Jerusalem. If you're unfamiliar with the geography, like Jerusalem is, I don't know, 40 miles inland. It's pretty far inland. I mean, imagine water flowing out of a, I don't know, solving and then being the main means that's going to like literally become the source of all sustenance for the state of California. This seems a little bit improbable, but this is the image that God says water will flow forth from the temple and go into the Dead Sea. And again, if you're not familiar with the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth, and it's the most unlikely spot where you'll find life. It's literally called the Dead Sea because nothing lives there. I mean, I'm sure things live there, but the point of the matter is, there's probably microbiological type stuff that survives, but the point of the matter is, anyways, I, I, I digress. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is it, you, you as a human being cannot necessarily survive there unless you have some form of artificial means of life giving you the necessity to live. But this future state, God says, this water flowing out of Jerusalem will feed into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea itself will become a source of extreme lushness and life and flourishing and beauty and fish and water sports and everything you can imagine that is part of the beauty of this world in which we live in. And then Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12, again, another statement. Uh, this is an, uh, a declaration from the prophet where he says, there will come a river coming out of the temple that will then go forth. And as you walk into it, you'll kind of get ankle deep, and it'll go a little bit deeper to your knees, and so on and so forth. And at, at some point, this, this river will go throughout the entire region and bring forth life everywhere it goes. And everything that comes in contact with this water will then live. These are images. So again, I want to bring you into the context here. It's into this high and holy feast day that Jesus emerges, stands up, and inserts himself. I just want you to imagine this. This is the type of God that we have. He inserts himself into these places of incredible and extreme drought and deficiency and hardship in desperation, and says, I'm here. I'm here to do something about all of this. I'm here to insert myself into the midst of the world's pain and do something about that. And this is the image that Jesus 
comes out of the scene. He's not just showing up and being like, hey, I'm here to celebrate, but he's here to say, I'm here to insert myself, to be the culmination, the completion. And just in case you miss this, uh, Jesus wants to really very clearly emphasize his commitment to this. So that's when we move on to the very next things. We see this. We're told in the latter portion of verse 37, it says, again, on the last day of the feast day, the great day, Jesus stood up, and then he cries out. Jesus boldly lifts up his voice. And again, I want you to just imagine what's happening here. So um, it's hard for us to even begin to imagine the sacredness of the temple, the sacred space of the temple. Um, So I just want you to think about thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people would gather in this particular region three times out of the year to remember Yahweh God and God's provision for them throughout their history. And so imagine on some steps or some region around here, hundreds of thousands of people hustling and bustling like a big, mad, crazy concert where there's no boundaries, nobody takes baths, it's very hot, it's very sticky, it's very humid, and all of this stuff is happening right here. And there's a lot of noise, a lot of commotion, a lot of yelling, a lot of just imagine everything you can imagine happening. Jesus stands up and cries out. The, the, the tone of voice Jesus must have had to cry out so that all these people heard is enormous. But he cries out, and here's what he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's one other little detail I didn't mention. I'll mention now. As a part of the ceremony, it was a seven-day feast. And usually on the last day, so there's all sorts of discussion as was this the seventh day or the last or the eighth day, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But what we do know is that there was tradition. And the tradition was that the priests would basically take this golden basin, they would fill it up with water down at a particular pool, I think it was called the Pool of Siloam. They would march it up the steps, kind of like in a big ceremony and then they would get to a certain region of the temple mount and they would take this big basin of you know golden basin and and pour the water down the steps and there it would just drain and this is a way of reminding them water from the rock water from the rock god has acted god has initiated god has stepped in water from the rock all right so the seventh day or the last day which is the greatest day of the entire feast the priest would do this seven times act of, you know, uh, you know, uh, underlining the importance of this, or italicizing this. It was a way of emphasizing, this is how committed God is to you. So they would do this seven times. They would pour the water out seven times as an act of saying, this is how committed God is to your healing, your renewal, your restoration, and the reordering of the sum total of your life. And after that Basin was poured out the seventh time. Jesus, I would imagine, cries out with this loud voice, with this bold declaration. All who come, all who are thirsty, come to me and I will give you water and I will quench your thirst. This is mind-numbing what Jesus is doing here. Okay, there's at least two things that are taking place that Jesus is declaring. Number one, he has to be declaring that he himself is the very presence of of God. That's what the temple stood for. The temple wasn't just like some sort of brick and mortar spot. People just go hang out and loiter. It was literally the spot where the presence of God, the hot spot of God's presence resided. But it wasn't just the hot spot of God's presence. It was also the source of from that life would come. 
would spring forth. Again, we just read those passages out of Zechariah and Ezekiel and these images of water coming forth from the rock. This was the rock that is being described here, that Jesus stands up and says, I am the rock, I am the presence of God, that from me everything that touches, that comes in contact with me, shall arise and live. It's absolutely mind-blowing what Jesus is saying. But here's the thing. Jesus is addressing this to a very specific audience. He's not saying, hey, everyone, come to me, because not everyone cares about Jesus. That's the fact. Not everyone is interested in what Jesus has to say. There are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that were around Jesus at this particular time. They didn't really care about him. There are others that were actually plotting and scheming his death. They didn't really, they weren't interested in what Jesus had to offer. They were interested in silencing Jesus, canceling him, and getting rid of him. Um, but there were a handful of people that were deeply moved and motivated and interested in what Jesus had to say. Who were those people? Well, Jesus very clearly articulates this. He says, if anyone thirsts. So the question is, who thirsts? What does it mean to even thirst? Jesus caters his audience to those specifically who have a thirst. I have identified their thirst. So I think it would be kind of interesting to even just think a little bit about, like, what does it even mean to thirst? Like, what does that even look like? So on a negative sense, I was listening to a sermon by a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he had some really good things to say, so I'm just kind of giving you the stuff that he had given me, and I was blessed by it, so hopefully you'll be blessed by it too. He says three things. Number one, what, in a negative sense, it does not mean to just simply taste, sample. Uh, in other words, just a mild curiosity. I'm curious. Is, is this Jesus stuff okay? Is it satisfying? I'll give it a little bit of a sample. That's not, that's not what he's describing here. Um, we'll get to what he's describing in a minute. Uh, the idea of just simply merely wanting a little bit of a taste is equivalent to saying, I want to know what it means to be in the midst of a 10-foot set wave, but only put my foot in the water. Like, you, you will never know what it's like to be in the midst of raw power, raw ocean, oceanic, like, surge and swell, unless you actually get out into the lineup and get into the water and get 100% wet, you will never, ever experience the thrill of the entirety of it if you just dip your toe in the water. And there's a lot of people that think of Christianity or Jesus as something they want to mildly taste and determine, do I want all in? Do I want to commit myself to this? So that's, that's not taste. It's, uh, hunger or thirst is not simply taste. Secondly, he describes it as not also being temporary relief. There's a lot of people that just want momentary or temporary relief. It's kind of like one of the reasons why recreational drinking is so popular today, because it's a way of just kind of taking the edge off of life. Life's hard. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but... Things are tough. Things are expensive. Um, things are expensive here in San Luis Obispo. It's not easy to live. It's not easy to have, you know, all sorts of things that we oftentimes would necessarily want to live in this part of the state. But the fact of the matter is, is that when we find ourselves confronted by the challenges and hardships of life, it's really easy to want to simply take the edge off of certain things. And so that's one of the reasons why people sometimes will turn to some form of temporary relief. And there's lots of different ways in which we turn to temporary relief. Um, What Jesus is inviting people into is thirst, not temporary relief. 
Uh, lastly, he describes this idea of just experience hunters, people that are just simply looking for an experience. So they'll hop or shop from one experience to another, finding something that will momentarily give them a sense of thrill or satisfaction or enjoyment, but then that doesn't satisfy. So there's always a need to find something more, uh, more intense, beyond, and this escalation of it. But the point that he kind of brings it back to in a positive sense is this idea that what Jesus seems to be inviting people into is this idea of a thirst, meaning, and I'm kind of nerdy when it comes to this type of stuff, so I looked up like the etymology of the word thirst, and it was interesting to me. But the idea that is conveyed in this particular word is simply this concept of to feel a deep ache, a drought, that there's this acute reality of something that's missing in your life, something not right, something out of sorts, something that if it was there, it would bring some degree of reprieve or satisfaction or life. But because it's not there, because it's absent, I just have nothing but this ache. So the question that I think you and I have to really kind of wrestle with and think through is what are those areas of ache or pain or loss or thirst that you yourself are facing? For each one of us, it's going to be different. There's different things that we long for. And there's different things that you and I have believed certain stories and rumors and narratives about that if we had this specific thing, that then we would find that thirst gone. We'd be satisfied. And then we have to wrestle with the question, is that true? Does that really play out the way it's being stated or communicated? Or is it just another bit of propaganda that we find ourselves in the midst of a world of fake news, trying to navigate the world of all sorts of headlines and ideas and concepts that really don't make sense or don't ultimately pan out the way that we hope for them to pan out? So lastly, what I want to look at is just simply five different areas. I'll go through these really quickly that I think that are really crucial in our world today, in which we live in today, that are massive, that I think we find ourselves that are areas of thirst constantly navigating, working through. Number one, I think of the idea of purpose, that many people feel a deep sense of lost, lostness or directionlessness uncertainty about the, their role and their purpose in this world. A lot of people are seeking meaningful goals and causes ultimately to devote themselves to. And it's one of the reasons why I think people can throw themselves entirely into their work or to uh, uh, a certain skill or a hobby or whatever the idea is, is because somehow within that, the hope would be that that will give purpose. And then in having purpose, drinking deeply from that cup of purpose, I will know my purpose in life and I will live. But again, there's challenges and there's problems and there's hardships there because what happens if you lose your job? What happens if the relationship breaks? What happens if all of these other things that can can go wrong actually do go wrong? The second one I think about is the idea of belonging, that as a disconnected and transient culture in which we live in, especially here on the Central Coast, that people ultimately genuinely thirst for community and friendship and belonging We truly long to feel like we fit in. And if we are on the other side of that door, there's that feeling of like, I'm not welcomed. No one knows my name. I don't know if anybody even knows what type of stuff I'm going through. I'm just simply anonymous. And as human beings, we cannot allow ourselves to live on that level of just simply being unknown. We want to be known. We want to feel a deep sense of belonging. Um, I think if you were to get even deeper into this, that we long for unconditional love 
and yet we end up settling for unconditional approval. It's a massive difference there. Massive difference. Unconditional approval is just simply having people say, I'm going to approve of your lifestyle, approve of your choices. That's different than unconditional love. Really what we want is love. We want to be loved. We, we want to know that in spite of who we are, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of those areas in our lives that we just don't even feel good about ourselves, that we are still nonetheless loved. So we long for belonging. Thirdly, we long for stability. In this world of constant change, instability, unpredictability, we long for some degree of security and something that's durable. It's another cup that we long for and seldomly ever drink from that. Fourthly, we long for hope. With all forms of problems and traumas and uncertainties, unmitigated anxieties that we find navigating in the landscape of our life, we long for some degree of hope, something I can anchor myself into, that I can be tethered into, that I'm not just simply drifting back and forth, up and down. Look, I don't know how to tell you this, but the fact of the matter is, is that like life is so filled with uncertainties. I honestly, like, there, there's, I'll give you a quick little story. There's, there's, a, there's a gal that I know, and I'm just going to be very vague on the de- details. She's going through a really tough time. She's been reaching out to my wife and I have recent and just extreme hardships that she's been facing. But to hear her resolve to press into Jesus, to pray, to seek God, to re-anchor, to re-tether herself to the historic Christian faith is, to me, like refreshing. I'm like, dude, this is exactly what you need to do. Just keep doing this. Repeat this over. You're literally doing what David had done, what Moses had done, what Abraham had done, what Sarah had done, what every human being in Scripture that has ever been faithful or has ever been called attention to out of, say, Hebrews chapter 11, people that were part of the hall of faith. That's what they do. They anchor themselves into the very presence in the goodness of God. And this is exactly how we, how we do this. Because apart from that hope, where do we drink? Where do we get hope from? I would suggest to you, apart from Jesus, there really is nothing but just a a big keg of despair. Tap that thing and drink and just end it. Because there's like literally nothing else. I know it sounds so morbid, but the fact of the matter is, where, where else do we find hope in a world that's just tanking everywhere around us? This is what Jesus invites us to drink deeply of himself. And lastly, this idea of significance. Individual accomplishments, or what I would even describe as self-expression, may feel empowering. I mean, think about this. We, we long to have our lives have some degree of significance. We want to feel like at the end of our lives, or at least at some point, we don't look back with just this utter realm of regret, like, oh my gosh, I literally just did absolutely nothing, played video games my entire life. What a waste. Like, people don't want to live like that. In fact, if that's you, then there's an opportunity to step out of that and step into something different. But the point of the matter is, is, is we want our lives to have some degree of significance. But how do we get that? How do we get there? Oftentimes, it's based upon either self-expressiveness or individual accomplishments. But here's the thing with, with all of that. As good as that is, and as self-empowering as that might feel, all of that is short-lived. It's all short-lived. And they require frequent adjustments, upgrades, innovations. Oh, and here's the last thing. Regular reoccurring affirmations of other people to remind us I am significant. And if we don't get those affirmations, 
then we find ourselves in a state of like, does anybody care? Does anybody see? I hate the world. Let it all go to hell. And it just leads us to cynicism and further complications of despair. All of this, at the end of the day, just leads to exhaustion. And it's in this context that Jesus would say, are you thirsty? What are you thirsty for? What are you trying to drink deeply of? What, what cup is there that's out there that's saying, has a big promise label on it, says, drink this and you will get dot, 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 fill in the blank. And what is it promising you? Like, what, what is the promise of engaging the cup? And the, again, bigger question is, does it have the ability to actually keep good on its promise? And I would suggest to you, outside of Jesus, every other thing in this world will never fully capture the magnitude, listen to me, the magnitude of your desires. This is not about shrinking your desires. I'm, I'm trying to tell you guys, don't shrink your desires. Expand your desires. But make sure that your desires are satiated by the right thing. C.S. Lewis would describe it this way. We are far too easily pleased. We're, we, we're like, you know, he's uh, going to botch the analogy, but he describes a child being offered a vacation at sea. He says, instead, the kid's just like, I don't want to go on a cruise ship. I just want to make mud pies. The kid doesn't get it, doesn't understand. He's being satisfied by making mud pies. Now, that might be enjoyable, but the fact of the matter is, it's like an all-you-can-eat cruise, like with all the food you can imagine, everything, I mean, swimming pools, all of the stuff that we would love for. He's saying, our problem is that we oftentimes are so too easily satisfied. Don't shrink your desires. Expand your desires. But make sure that your desires are matched to the resources that Jesus himself gives. Who is Jesus? Again, he stands up at the Temple Mount and he declares, All you thirst, come to me. I'm the presence of God. I'm the life giver. I'm the one that will come into those crevices and dry areas and places of pain and hurt and hardship and despair and sorrow, and grief, and depression, and loss, and I will make all things new. Because I am the God that alone can do that. He's the renewing God. This is who he is. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's literally good news. You cannot create this on your own. You cannot inherit this by doing good. You can't buy this. You don't have enough money for this. You can't merit this. You can't take a master class and discern the mysteries of the universe that God offers, but you can receive it right now. And Jesus says, come to me, drink, and you will be satisfied. I'm done. And I'm going to have Dan come on up. He's going to close us out in song of worship. And I want to invite you guys to stand. And we're going to just, in this moment, just lift up our voice as a final act of worship. And I hope Dan's here. Is Dan here? Yes, he is here. Good. Awesome. Praise God. Um, and I want to just invite you to just tune your heart, to lift up your voice, to declare what Jesus alone has to offer. And this is, this is, this is what makes the good news good.
good news. Because guess, guess who's included in this? Everyone. Young, old. You, you can't look at your life and be like, I've lived so long and I've done so many bad things. I don't, I don't deserve it. You're right. You don't deserve it. But Jesus, and he loves you, and he invites you nonetheless. You can look at your life and be like, I'm really young and I got my whole entire life ahead of me and I have never even had sex and one of these days I would love to do that on my own terms and I don't really care what the rest of the world I want to do things on my own. And Jesus says, is that, is that going to satisfy you? Is that going to be better than what I have to offer you? Again, it's a bad illustration, but you, you get the idea. It's, it's a good thing that God intends for really, really good gift giving in its right context, but the point that I would make is this. We have all of these things that we hope that if we can just sink our teeth into it, then we will live. And Jesus says, None of it will fully satisfy the way I satisfy. Come to me. You who thirst. The question that you've got to wrestle with, are, are you really thirsty? Or are you just looking for an appetizer to temporarily satiate something or an experience or something that's going to truly quench the depth of your thirst?